0: interviewing abraham lincoln initially you going straight to kevin wood are you doing how are you doing this because i've done both ways
1: i, I was hoping to <laughs> uh, interv- interview kevin yeah kevin okay. wood um okay. but definitely i want to ask you a lot of things on okay abraham lincoln okay. um in i the may time revert I into
0: lincoln at certain points um <laughs> i mean when i'm dressed like this it's hard not to be lincoln so like I start talking like this, and then you know you're talking to Lincoln, you're not talking to Kevin. <laughs> and
1: for those, um,
0: Kevin was born in Michigan, Lincoln was born in Kentucky. <laughs> I, I
1: yeah, for those who aren't, because uh, we don't have a video, but Mr. Kevin Wood is dressed up in very much very Lincoln like right now, which is really cool. Because um, you just came back. I know we were talking before we started, but um, you had a pre- two presentations today. Two presentations
0: right. today, yeah, yeah. both at senior homes.
1: Nice. And I, I know I had asked you before, too. Um, senior homes, you do schools, libraries? The, those are the big three. Yeah. Uh, libraries, senior homes, schools.
0: Uh, of course, I also do museums. I do living history events like Civil War reenactments. I do festivals, fairs, that sort of thing. I do uh, parties, uh, conferences, I do an occasional race, a 5K race, I do triathlons dressed as Abe. Yeah, a little bit of everything, whatever you want. (laughs) Uh, Last week in Chicago, I did uh, an annual event we call Drinking with Lincoln. (laughs) It's a pub crawl with Abe Lincoln.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Lamont,
0: Illinois. Yeah. That is. Went to eight different pubs. I drank my cranberry juice. Everyone else drank what they wanted. It's a free country. And <laughs> at the end, they sang happy birthday to me. and It was all fun. Very cool. I also, last week, I did uh, the uh, O'Hare Airport. Oh, I Chicago. was hired to walk the terminals of O'Hare Airport and just greet people. Welcome to the land of Lincoln and pose for pictures.
1: Oh, that is really cool. Yeah, so
0: occasionally I get to do something kind of fun like that.
1: Yeah. Wow. And uh, just a really quick introduction uh, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. My name is Chris. This is Chi And like I said, joined by Mr. Kevin Wood, who it's funny when I was telling people that I was interviewing you, I said uh, impersonator, but I felt like I was accusing you of something. Like, you know, I, I I, didn't know what to say other than. Well, we prefer the term uh, presenter, presenter or portrayer. I like that. Yeah. Okay.
0: Elvis has impersonators. Abraham Lincoln has presenters
1: or portrayers. <laughs>
0: Just kind of a step above. Yeah,
1: <laughs> like I said, I I knew that that was the wrong word. I'm like, no, that's that's not the right word here. But I like that portrayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long have you been doing this? Well, what I usually tell people is 214 years, but I'll, I'll
0: just go straight. Uh, I, I've been doing this uh, as a as a hobby, if you will, since the year 2000. For many years, it was a hobby. It turned into a side job, and eventually it turned into a full-time job, and that was about seven years ago. Okay. So for the last seven years, this has been my my main uh, profession, if you will. And what were you doing before? I've had three careers. So I was a federal government employee. I worked for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, regional office in Philadelphia, worked in the Superfund program. That was my career, if you will. Then I spent 10 years in Spain as a missionary, a uh, church planter. We also did a lot of activities in the community, teaching English, sports activities, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And now I'm Abraham Lincoln. Just kind of
1: flows naturally, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> Had it all <laughs> planned out in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I was going to say, did you see like your life taking this path? Like, no,
0: no. <laughs> I, I, when I was doing it back in the early 2000s, it was just something fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it was educational. I, I, I love history. Mm-hmm. and as a way to present history in a fun way. But I never imagined that I would do this
1: as a full-time job. And Spain, I did see that you have done presentations in Spanish as well. Yes, I
0: am fluent in Spanish, and therefore I offer programs in Spanish. And I occasionally, maybe once or twice a year, I get to do a program in Spanish at a library, a school, that
1: sort of thing. Wow. Your presentations, too... During during COVID, were you still giving them but just virtually? I did what the whole world did. I pivoted pretty quickly to, to
0: virtual yeah. because think about it. Schools, libraries, senior homes. Strike yeah. one, strike two, strike three. Nobody was having me anywhere. Yeah, And I recognized pretty early on this wasn't going to be a two-week thing, a three-week thing like they said. <laughs> uh, so I learned Zoom just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. I already had done some video editing in the past, so that wasn't a big problem. So I I basically offered both ways, virtual live by Zoom, uh, or occasionally Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and then recorded videos. So I would record a video, put it up on YouTube, and and offer it that way. And I did about 220 virtual programs in a period of about a year and a half.
1: Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah. But... (laughs) Quite frankly, I, I much prefer the in-person. So as yeah. soon as we were able to get back into in-person, I made the move back. Mm-hmm. I still do an occasional virtual program. Mm-hmm. But I do know other portrayers who uh, have gotten kind of stuck in the virtual world and uh, are still doing mostly virtual. <clears throat> but mm-hmm. that's not me.
1: I Are there a lot of challenges with doing them virtually? For
0: me, the biggest challenge is, I think, I mean, Abraham Lincoln's a very, the way I present Lincoln, at least, he's a very personable person. He, uh, you know, engaging, uh, eye contact, smiling, laughing, and it's harder to do that virtually. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even in a live virtual, like Zoom, you know, you're looking at a little face in a box yeah. <clears throat> rather than seeing the actual person standing before you mm-hmm. and Lincoln's physical presence. I mean, the, the height, the six feet, four inches tall. Um, it's just, it's hard to capture all that in a virtual setting.
1: I could totally see that. You have the height too. I do
0: have the height. <laughs> Although I will point out cause people ask, you know, Lincoln, if you read a history book tells you I was six feet four, mm-hmm. but if you read my autobiography and I ought to know, I said I'm six feet four inches nearly, yeah, so I must have been just a tad under six four. Yeah. Okay, and that's what I still am today. I'm six four
1: nearly. <laughs> yeah. I this is kind of a side note, but I I looked up once um, presidential elections if the taller candidate won, and it doesn't seem like that it's not correlated okay. like sometimes the shorter one one and sometimes the taller okay so one. height
0: is isn't always an advantage yeah. yeah
1: which i i don't know i thought it maybe just presence wise the taller person would maybe stand out
0: well i've heard that i've, I've heard that case made before but i haven't heard i haven't seen data behind it so it's interesting that you looked for the data and didn't <laughs> find correlation
1: i i'm trying to think of like an example, I mean, I feel like we've had some tall presidents. A lot of the presidents have been tall. I yeah. I mean,
0: Lyndon Johnson was tall. Yeah. Reagan was tall. George Bush was relatively tall. I think George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, Barack Obama's relatively tall.
1: Yeah. Clinton's tall. Clinton even um, tall.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I've heard other people say that. Well, you know, being a taller person gives you some, some advantage in that, but I don't know if it's true. Um but there's, there's been short presidents, too. Like... A lot of – some of the early presidents were pretty short. Yeah. Madison and uh, – mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about my great rival. He wasn't president, but he very – could have been Stephen Douglas. Okay. Five feet, four
1: inches tall. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, getting into Lincoln – or let me ask you this. Why Lincoln? I mean, I know – Arguably, like, our greatest president, but, like, what drew you to wanting to portray Lincoln versus the other 46 presidents
0: that Right. We had? <laughs> well, in my case, I went to high school in Illinois. I went to high school in a town called Metamora, which is in central Illinois near Peoria. Metamora was one of the stops on Lincoln's circuit. Where he wrote the circuit as a lawyer. The courthouse in Metamorris still stands today that Abraham Lincoln practiced law in. Mm. And there are only two courthouses that I know of in their original location still standing where Lincoln practiced law. Uh, the other one's in Mount Pulaski and Logan County, um, Metamorris in Woodford County. There is a third one. A lot of people know that if you go to Greenfield Village, mm. you've got the Postville Courthouse. So that was also a courthouse that Lincoln practiced law in, but it's no longer where it was when Lincoln practiced law, obviously. Okay. so. Uh, the Metamore Courthouse is a state historical site and it was three blocks from my high school. So it's kind of, that was my introduction, if you will, to Lincoln in high school. Of course, I didn't look like Lincoln back then. But I went to college, grew the beard, resemblance started coming out mm-hmm. and you know people would say, eh, you know, you look like Lincoln. Yeah. So I decided to do it just for fun in my church. It was the year 2000 and I had always, I love history. I've always loved history, love American history in particular and I've always had a, you know, fascination a respect for Lincoln, uh, for what he did for our country, for his character. And so, uh, you know, it just seemed like a a natural sort of thing to do. I actually debated doing it in church because um, I was very interested in learning about Lincoln's religious views because there's a lot of differences of opinion on that. And I decided I would look into it, and depending on what I found out, I either would or would not have Lincoln speak in church. Mm -hmm. So based on what i read I, I believe that by the end of lincoln's life he is what i would call a believer and so i i felt comfortable in bringing lincoln to church if you will
1: mm-hmm. okay
0: yeah and then nice. somebody saw that wanted me to go to their school and they kind of for for a few years i did it a, a fair bit and then i then i went to spain i was in spain for 10 years didn't do lincoln a whole lot in spain although there was one time a year that we that i often would do it and that's thanksgiving because Spaniards are, are fascinated by the American holiday of Thanksgiving because it's so different. It's <laughs> really? so different from anything <laughs> they have. And so and they see it in the movies. They see it on TV. Mm-hmm. And so uh, among other things in Spain, we were, we were church planters, but we also taught English, did other activities, and we would invite our English students to come to a Thanksgiving meal. And Abraham Lincoln might just appear and read his Thanksgiving proclamation and, and talk about it.
1: Very cool. Yeah.
0: And then when I came, so that was we were in spain for 10 years i came back from spain in 2013 by 2014 i needed a job i was 47 years old five college degrees 20 years work experience and so what i would be qualified for walmart costco i mean that's pretty much what i was looking at i said i'd I'd rather be abe lincoln nice (laughs) yeah
1: really really quick I was gonna ask you about this later, but since you brought it up with the religious aspect of Lincoln, um, how common do all do all of our presidents have like some sort of religious belief? Like, have we ever had a president who we flat out knew? Hey, they did not believe. Because I have heard that about Lincoln. That some people say he didn't. He might not have believed in God, or he wasn't a Christian, but I don't know.
0: Well, Lincoln went through a, a, a pilgrimage, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he didn't have static views his whole life long. He grew up among a Christian population, went to church. His father was a deacon in the church. You know, he, he grew up in that environment. Mm-hmm. But as a young man, he was a an, admittedly a skeptic. Uh, he, he read and he read everything. He read the enlightenment authors, he read Voltaire, he, he read Hume. So, so, you know, his mind was open to different ideas. And at that point, he's not really quite sure what he's going to believe, mm-hmm. but he never, as he himself famously wrote when he was accused of being an infidel by Peter Cartwright, who was a Methodist circuit writing preacher and his opponent when he ran for Congress, uh, he responded in a public handbill where he said, um, uh, that I'm not a member of any Christian church is true, but I've never spoken with intentional disrespect of religion in general or of any particular denomination of Christians in in particular, something along those lines. Uh Um, And then as as time went on after that, he was gradually drawn, I think, closer back into a a relationship with God, if you will, uh, through events in his life, in particular the death of Eddie in Springfield, the death of Willie in Washington. His sons? His two sons, yeah, yeah, the two sons that they lost. So... And if you read the th- if you read the uh, second inaugural address, it is essentially a theological treatise. The people were expecting a victory speech, and Lincoln gave them a somber theological treatise and why this nation had suffered so much as a nation, and basically it was because of slavery. The Civil War is a punishment by God on this nation, both north and south, for the offense of slavery. Um, you know he had to believe something mm-hmm. <laughs> to. say that rather than give the nation a political victory speech, which is what any other politician would have done.
1: This is another little side note speaking of this. I was uh, listening to somebody talk about uh, John F. Kennedy. Kennedy was the first Roman Catholic president and I didn't realize this a lot of people at that time saw that as a negative against Kennedy Mm -hmm. and I, I mean today I wouldn't I don't know. I wouldn't think about it like that. I mean, and I know President uh, Biden is Catholic as well, um, but to me that felt weird. Like, oh, why do we? Why would we care about if somebody's Catholic? Um, I don't know. It just
0: well think about think about Lincoln's time. There was a lot of anti Catholic sentiment because was there starting
1: really? in the starting
0: in the thirties eighteen thirties and forties and then fifties, a lot of the new immigrants were coming from Ireland. And from Germany, oh, okay. a lot of them were Catholic. The, the percentage of the population in the United States, which was foreign-born, went from 1% in 1815 to nearly 14% by 1860. A tremendous increase in the foreign-born population. Mm-hmm. The population, which was Roman Catholic, had gone from, say, 1% back in 1790 to about 7.5% by 1860. Mm-hmm. Another huge increase. And remember the know-nothings? No. So the no-nothings, the the uh, the American party, they call themselves, anti-immigrant. Basically, they want to uh, have laws in place that will limit the influence of these newer groups coming over because they're not quite sure if they're going to be dedicated to American values like liberty, democracy. They think they'll be controlled by the Pope in Rome. Millard Fillmore, 1856, third party, no-nothing candidate, got 21% of the vote. Wow. And that was essentially an anti-immigrant party. Wow. So there was no way that a Catholic would have been elected president in Lincoln's time.
1: And you said this was 1856?
0: 1856, which is okay. the first election that there was a Republican candidate, John Fremont. So if Fillmore hadn't been in the race, and Fillmore was a former president, right? Right, right. So he was former yeah. Democratic president, but the Democrats were... Uh, uh buchanan was the democratic candidate that year so millard fillmore ran as a third party candidate for the know nothings and uh, like i say got 21 percent of the vote wow they called themselves actually the american party that was their official name and uh they called themselves native americans okay that's right in the 1850s a native american was a white person born in this country as opposed to a white person born elsewhere We have to be careful how we use terminology because you know we we assume that if we use terminology that we understand today that that's you know it was might have been different in the past
1: right yeah Yeah. wow i I never knew that wow
0: thank you for sharing that (laughs) and and the irish in particular (laughs) the irish were the lowest and on the lowest rung on the on the ladder if you will Mm -hmm. and so i mean the no no irish need apply on this on store signs because mm-hmm. the Irish were just they were despised they were tended to be well they were poor they were dirt poor mm-hmm. they didn't tend to have much education and so you know for the regular white population in America especially the Protestant you know population that they didn't want anything to do with the Irish mm-hmm. so to imagine mean, if you had told somebody in the 1850s that in a hundred years the great Grandson of eight of these Irish immigrants is going to be president of the United States. They never would have believed you. <laughs> but that's with John. John, as I understand, as I recall, John Kennedy's eight great grandparents all came over from Ireland mm-hmm. in, in the uh, around that time.
1: In Ireland, had a potato famine. So, right. th- were they? Do you think were they coming to America to kind of escape the? Like turmoil that was happening in Ireland. Right, so
0: 1845 I think was the height of the potato famine and, and I mean people are literally starving to death in Ireland mm-hmm. and so they needed to go somewhere and America was considered the, the land of opportunity and so they were coming over in droves. I think if I recall about a one third of the whole population of Ireland left Ireland during those years. Oh. They didn't all come to the United States but uh, one third of them left. It was either, you know, leave or die
1: Mm -hmm. wow
0: and the and the british i mean the irish and the british weren't the best of friends so they didn't necessarily want to go there that's what i've heard
1: (laughs) um getting back to to lincoln his time growing up what was family like did he brothers and sisters i know you mentioned about his father being a deacon but his mom what was the story there
0: yeah basic frontier story so his father was a, a farmer and a carpenter um, a hard-working man but not not very educated and saw no need for his children to be educated lincoln's mother and then later his stepmother because lincoln lost his mother at, at the age of nine uh, his father remarried a year later
1: what did she die of
0: uh, she died of what they called milk sick which essentially was uh poisoning There was a a plant called the white snake root plant. Mm -hmm. And if a cow would eat that plant, then the milk they would produce would be poisonous. Cows didn't normally eat this plant, but when there wasn't other vegetation around, they would eat it. Of course, they didn't understand this, but uh, it wasn't just Lincoln's mother who got sick. Uh, She was actually caring for his aunt and uncle who had also gotten the milk sick and and died. And then his mother died as well. And there were, I think, some other people in the community who died at the same time. but with they just called it milk sickness or the milk sick wow. yeah so that so i mean lincoln grew up in you know, kind of hard scrabble frontier life we know the story the log cabin not being able to go to school much you know having to work hard on the farm uh his father thought he should just be a farmer and carpenter like himself mm-hmm. didn't think he should, needed to be educated beyond just rudimentary education and it, whereas his mother and his stepmother greatly encouraged him in his reading and his learning uh he had an older sister named Sarah, two years older than him. They were Abraham and Sarah. right? And uh, she died around the age of 20, uh, giving birth to her first child. So Lincoln at this point has lost his mother. He's lost his sister. And then later in life, you know, we know all of his other losses. Uh, Ann Rutledge, the supposed first love in New Salem. Later, the two children. Later, the Civil War. I mean... Mm-hmm the Lincolns lost people, friends in the Civil War.
1: A lot of loss, wow.
0: Yeah. Jeez. <clears throat>
1: how, how does Lincoln then become a lawyer?
0: Well, that's a very interesting question. So Lincoln was always trying to new, do new jobs. Mm-hmm. When he lived in New Salem in Illinois, he was a surveyor. He worked in a store. He owned a store, failed at it. He uh, served three months in the Black Hawk War, elected captain of his volunteer company. He was elected to the General Assembly, the state legislature. But what he really And he was still doing flat boat trips down to St. Louis, things like that. But he really wanted to be a lawyer. And there's different ways to tell this story, but one is essentially that uh, John Todd Stewart was a fellow, uh, well, he, he met him in the Black Hawk War. He was a lawyer in Springfield. And John Todd Stewart lent Lincoln some of his law books. Lincoln studied those off and on a couple of years, took the examination, passed it, so he's an attorney at law now, and then John Todd Stewart invited him to move to Springfield and become his junior law partner. And he also would later introduce him to his cousin, Miss Mary Todd.
1: Who he ends up... Uh, he ends up marrying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, this... Okay, the, the so,
0: so it's about it's self-study. There were two ways to become a lawyer back then on the frontier. There were not law schools per se in Illinois. There were out east, but not per se. So you could either uh, read law under an existing lawyer. That is, you uh, basically did like an internship or an apprenticeship. Lincoln had neither the time nor the money to do that. The other way was to get the books, study them yourself, and and then take the exam. Mm -hmm. And years later, when when young aspiring lawyers write to Lincoln and say, tell me how to become a lawyer – they were looking for shortcuts. You know, they wanted the easy way out. Lincoln said, work, work, work. He said, get the books, study them till you understand them. You know, read mm-hmm. through this one, read through it twice. Uh, but he also said this, your own resolution to succeed is more important than anything else. Because these were young men thinking they got to go to the big city to study. Lincoln said, no, yeah. I studied a new Salem, which never had more than 300 people in it. He said, the books and your capacity for understanding them are the same in all places.
1: That reminds me of a quote um, from the movie Hoosiers. Uh, Gene Hackman brings the team in, into the basketball arena. I think mm-hmm. where they're about to play uh, the championship. Yeah, in. Hinkle Fieldhouse, right? Yeah, <clears throat> and he says, "How how long is the like the baseline to the key? How how tall is the hoop here?" They're like, "Oh yeah, it's you know it's ten feet. It's just like back home, back at our home court." And he says, "Well." Something to the effect of, well, gentlemen, I think you'll find that the measurements here are no different than, you know, what we play in every day Mm -hmm. and time to play basketball, (laughs) which is, I mean, it's a good perspective to have. I mean, is anything like for my background, you play football, um, you know, is any field really that much different than your home field? I mean, it's the same dimensions, it's just the crowd. It's the crowd, it's the environment, yeah. It's a good perspective to have. Um, Speaking of Lincoln's, uh, like, legal career, what kind of law are we talking that Lincoln practiced?
0: Uh, Frontier law was anything and everything. So it was a lot of property cases. It was title disputes. It was dispute about property boundaries, a lot of that sort of thing. Uh, it was a lot of slander cases. Gentlemen were always being offended by something someone else said or did to them. So there's <laughs> slander. And Lincoln, you know, he famously defended his, uh, his friend, Ashrell Gridley, in Bloomington, Illinois. Ashrell Gridley was a, a lawyer turned businessman, rich man, kind of disliked by most of the people because he had a brash personality. And Lincoln defended him in a slander case. And basically he said this, he, he, he admitted that Ashrell Gridley had said the pejorative words in question, but then he said, but this shouldn't be considered slander. Well, Ashel Gridley says that stuff about everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and beyond that, yeah. uh, <laughs> excuse me, a lot of debt cases, um, some criminal." Uh, not mm-hmm. a lot, but Lincoln did do criminal cases, of course. Uh, he had about 25 murder cases that he, he, including a couple of his most famous cases. And then a lot of, uh, you know, did a lot of work for corporations and also for uh, jurisdictions, for uh, municipalities, counties, the state. Uh, but he did a lot of work for the Illinois Central Railroad, for example. So corporate law. Yeah, a little bit of everything.
1: And wow. the railroad. At this time, like that's a pretty big deal. A bit, yeah,
0: when, when Lincoln started in, in 1837, the railroad wasn't was just an experiment, if you will. By 1850s, railroads are huge, and mm-hmm. there are the, in Illinois, the Illinois Central was the longest railroad in the country. It was wow. a, 700 miles total of the two branches. Uh, it was the first land-grant railroad in the United States. Meaning that the federal government had had given them land to build the railroad over and and the railroad company could sell portions of the land to raise money and mm-hmm. the, the other part was retained by the government with the feeling that after the railroad's built, the property's gonna increase in value. So mm-hmm. they'll get their money back essentially. Okay. Yeah.
1: And from And, st- and I should
0: say also uh mm-hmm. divorce cases. You know, well, <laughs> okay. we don't like we don't tend to think that, but there were a lot of divorce cases back in the day. And Lincoln was equally uh, willing to represent a woman in a divorce case as it was a man. And not all lawyers were were that interested in doing that, because mm. um, obviously lawyers were men back then. There, okay. weren't, there weren't female lawyers, at least not in Illinois. Mm-hmm. So but Lincoln was very willing to to represent women in mm-hmm. uh, divorce cases and other kinds of cases.
1: Wow. I, no, I never knew that. Um is oh before I before I go into like the political career um when do you think when does Lincoln start forming like his his thoughts on like race uh, slavery is this d- does he kind of start to think about that when he's younger or older uh, in his legal career I think
0: it's a it's a constant, Uh, evolution of thinking you know he grew up in Kentucky which was a slave state so from his very earliest days he was exposed to slavery Mm -hmm. but he was also exposed to it in a way I mean his his parents were against slavery they were affiliated with a church which was anti-slavery so from a very early age he had the feeling that slavery was an injustice and an iniquity he said he said later in life he said if slavery is not wrong nothing is wrong so that was his own personal view of slavery from a very early age, and, and inculcated by his parents, by his church, by his reading of the scriptures. But politically, you know, slavery its a whole, it's a much more complex question, because here we have this nation, which was founded upon this, uh, well, I mean, compromises were necessary for the colonies to come together, and all the compromises essentially had to do with slavery. You know, and so um, and then every so many years we have another argument about slavery. Have to have another compromise about slavery. Mm-hmm. So politically, Lincoln recognizes that the Constitution protects slavery, and in addition we have laws like the Fugitive Slave Law, which give slave owners the right to come back into the North and retrieve fugitive slaves. And this is law. This is all settled law. So Lincoln, you know, feels that we need to obey those laws, keep those laws. At the same time, kind of hoping, wishing that somehow or another we can, you know, gradually do away with those laws. Mm-hmm. But it's not gonna be something, it's not gonna be simply standing up and saying, well, these laws are immoral, so they're, they're done with. Um, you know, it's the law of the land. Mm-hmm. And so we have to find a way to gradually move the country away from that. But the problem was, you go from the time of the revolution and people like Thomas Jefferson who said you know he's a slave owner we all know that but he also said he 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 trembled for his country when he reflected that god is just that his justice cannot sleep forever a lot of the original the founding fathers as we call them even the ones who were slave owners recognized that slavery was an injustice three generations later 1850s the mind in the south has undergone a total change and you have representatives and senators and governors and political persons in the south at that time basically no longer acknowledging the injustice of slavery but proffering excuses for it saying it's a positive good it's the natural condition of an inferior being it's the uh, it's god's will and plan for humanity so the the south for whatever reason had undergone this great change which of course is going to make it much more difficult now (laughs) to come to any agreement on slavery yeah and evidence of that, of course, is what happened in the country, you know, the, the inevitable secession and then war.
1: Do you think, is there a difference? Because I, so I hear, like, people talk about being anti-slavery, but then I also hear abolitionists. Mm-hmm. And are those two the same, or are they different?
0: No, not necessarily. So an abolitionist uh, was, was kind of the, the most radical view on, on the subject, and they believed that, uh, first of all, that the the black man was uh, should be equal to the white man, and, and and that we should get rid of slavery immediately, basically as quickly as we can get rid of slavery, even if it means um, breaking the Constitution, if you will. You know, so the Constitution protects slavery. Abolitionists said we shouldn't have laws that protect slavery. Whereas somebody who's anti-slavery like Lincoln, a more moderate view. Lincoln was always in favor of, say, um, instead of immediate emancipation, he was in favor of compensated, or first of all, gradual compensated emancipation. So in other words, we're going to do it gradually. If we all of a sudden free four million people, most of whom have never known what it was to live in freedom, don't know what it is to provide for themselves, haven't been educated, their owners have prevented their education, and we suddenly say to these 4 million people, you are free. How are they going to live? Where are they going to live? Yeah. How are they going to survive? Most white people wouldn't welcome them into their own communities. So Lincoln and others recognized that that could create even greater evils than slavery did. So they felt that more a more reasonable approach would be to do it gradually. For example, say... When a, a, a slave child reaches a certain age, they're free. Um, and also to compensate slave owners. Now, to our thinking today, you know, it's hard for us to grasp this. But keep in mind, prop property in slaves in the South was the most important, largest, you know, asset that they had. I think even more than land, I think. And so, you know... Imagine today that the federal government would decide that uh, automobiles are illegal. And they were then to confiscate every single automobile owned by every single citizen of the United States, but they would not compensate them for them. So if you spent $25,000 on your whatever, Mm -hmm. they're not going to give you money for that. Would people think that was fair? (laughs) There'd be an uproar, right? If you're going to take my car away, at least give me the money for it. Well, the slave owner, I mean, it's really the same thing. They have spent $1,500 for this person to be their slave. They spent Mm -hmm. this much money for this person. And even though we don't agree with that on a moral basis, clearly, still it was a legal property transaction at the time. Mm -hmm. So for the abolitionists to say, well, we're not going to compensate you for, for this because it's not right to compensate you. It just creates a whole other level of of animosity toward the government and toward those who are on the other side of things, which is why Lincoln was never really an abolitionist. Although you can argue that probably by the end of the war, he'd kind of come over to the abolitionist camp. But when he began his presidency, he was certainly not an abolitionist.
1: Now, do his views on slavery drive him towards a political career or was something else driving him towards like running for office?
0: Well, at different times of life, it was different things. So as a young man, he grew up, he was, I, I believe his family was Jacksonian Democrat heritage, but he, he rejected that pretty early and he uh, aligned himself with the, with the Whig party. So Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, which was essentially the opposition party during the thirties and forties and, and early fifties. And so uh, because he was a Whig, he was all in favor of internal improvements, for example, which we would call infrastructure projects today. So it's like building railroads, building roads, clearing harbors, uh, making rivers more navigable, uh, canals, So and, and spending government money to do that. So uh, that was the, probably their number one agenda item, if you will. Whigs are in favor of a national bank. Basically, anything the Democrats are, are against, the Whigs are for. Anything the Democrats are for, the Whigs are against. That's how it works. So, national bank. The Democrats are totally against it. Andy Jackson, we're getting rid of the national bank. The Whigs say, no, we need a national bank. <laughs> um, internal improvements. The Democrats say you can't have government building these projects, and certainly not the federal government. And the Whigs say, well, yes, you can have government building these projects to help grow the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so economic issues really were his primary driver in early years. But he also was interested in other issues. So in his very first political campaign, he first spoke about the the importance of internal improvements, in particular to build a, or to improve navigation on the Sangamore River. He actually argued against building a railroad because he oh. said we don't have enough money for that. <laughs> so he said internal improvements are OK as long as we have money for it. Mm-hmm. But we can't build these huge projects. We don't have money for them. But then he also said, he spoke against usury, uh, that is the loaning of uh, money at exorbitant rates of interest, and then he he spoke in favor of education, calling it the most important thing which we as a people can be engaged in, that every man may have at least a moderate education, by which he may read the histories of his own and other countries, and and thereby uh, recognize the importance of our free institutions not to mention being able to read the scriptures and other works of a religious and moral nature. So Lincoln, early on, was also mindful of the importance of education. But then as time went on, uh, in, the, in the Illinois state legislature, they didn't deal much with, with the issue of slavery. Um, but by the time he was in Congress, 47 to 49, the big issue was the Mexican War, which is very closely tied into the issue of slavery. Because the Whig Party... In, in, in general, and Lincoln in particular, were opposed to the Mexican War. They thought it was unnecessary, unjust, unconstitutional. Um, essentially, it was a land grab on the part of President Polk to get more land into which to extend slavery. And Lincoln very famously stood up on the, hall, on the floor of the House of Representatives, he'd only been there two weeks, He gave his his big speech. It's called the spot. It came came to be known as the spot resolutions because he demanded that President Polk demonstrate the spot of land where our our blood was shed was actually American soil, not the disputed Mm. territory between the rivers. Lincoln thought it was basically a pretext to start a war in order to get get land. And uh, the speech was not very popular. (laughs) In fact, Lincoln got himself a nickname spotty Lincoln. It was not meant as a compliment. And so Lincoln essentially, for the second time in his life, it looks like his political career is over because of this. But lo and behold, five years later, 1854, Stephen Douglas, Kansas Nebraska Act, all of a sudden slavery now is the issue. Mm -hmm. The absolute issue we have to deal with. Slavery, whether or not to allow it to go into Kansas, go into other parts of the West. And that's what gets Lincoln back into politics. And from that point on Slavery is certainly the most important issue. He gave a, spe- <clears throat> excuse me, he gave a speech in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, only speech in Michigan, by the way, August twenty seventh, eighteen fifty six, and among other things, he said, the issue of uh, the question of slavery should be at this moment not only the most important question but very nearly the sole question. And that's essentially what happened in the 1850s. Um, Slavery issue, and in particular the Kansas-Nebraska Act, that became the defining issue, which led to the demise of the Whig Party, eventually would lead to the demise of the Democratic Party, and brought about instead, you're either going to be anti-Nebraska or or or, or Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And uh, that became the major dividing line. So all these other issues, national bank, internal improvements, uh, all these other things faded to the background. And the most important issue became you're either for or against slavery extension. And so from that point on, yeah, we can say that slavery was the the driving issue, if you will. But still not the only issue. I mean, there's other things going on in the country still. Mm-hmm. People forget that. Mm-hmm. We think of the civil, uh, L- Lincoln's presidency, we think all he did
1: was centered on the Civil War. You know, but there are other important things that happened. You know what's so funny? You bring up that, uh, the Michigan speech. Um, I interviewed an author, Marie LaPrey, uh, she writes, um, novels centered around the civil war. Mm -hmm. And she mentioned that to me that Lincoln gave a speech in Kalamazoo. Um, I'd never knew that before. Um, she also mentioned to me that the state of Michigan, uh, gave the, the most horses, uh, cavalry for the, the union army during the civil war or like, um, the most amount of horses came from Mich- Michigan mm. uh, to supply for the army for the Civil War. I don't. Hopefully that made sense. But. Yeah, I hadn't heard that before.
0: <laughs> uh, I will tell you this, yeah. the uh, the people of Kalamazoo are rather proud of this fact. They've And there's a group out there, they spent the last 15 years or so really promoting this. There's a, mm-hmm. an organization called the Kalamazoo Abraham Lincoln Institute. There's also the Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo Valley Museum, the Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo County Historical Society and um the institute in particular is leading the push uh, they've commissioned a statue oh, cool. uh, it's it's under uh, whatever you do to a statue as it's, it's being it's being <laughs> uh sculpted as we sculpted. speak <laughs> and on august 27th of this year the 160th anniversary of the speech uh, they're going to dedicate this uh, the statue in bronson park right in downtown Kalamazoo. Uh, that's cool yeah so and they're also oh. doing a lot of things in the community to promote to build upon lincoln's uh, visit there as a way to develop uh, you know leadership among youth and things like that in the community
1: oh that's really cool
0: wow and because of all that the an organization which i'm part of called the association of lincoln presenters and <laughs> uh, we have a conference every year and uh, i'm promoting kalamazoo as the site of our conference in 2025 uh, nice. We always choose two two years ahead, so we will choose in this April whether to have the conference in Kalamazoo
1: in two years. Yeah, I hope Kalamazoo gets it. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> worthwhile. Um, do you think? I I heard I was reading some stuff on that first election that uh, the first national election that Lincoln gets elected. Um, Lincoln doesn't get a lot of the popular vote or not like a over 50% of it. Right. Do do you think, does Lincoln care about not being quote unquote pop, like popular, like kind of um, that he doesn't have the hearts and minds of over 50% of the country. Do you think he would care about something like that when he gets elected?
0: Well, I I think it it might have bothered him a little bit, but probably not too much, because we need to remember there were four candidates. And so uh, there's Lincoln representing the the Republican Party. There's Stephen Douglas representing the Democratic Party. But the Southern Democrats split off, nominated John Breckinridge, who was currently the vice president as as their candidate. There was a fourth candidate, John Bell from Tennessee. So there's four candidates. So even though he only got 40 percent, that 40 percent was more than any other candidate. So, basically, Lincoln got forty percent. Douglas about thirty. Breckenridge about ten, or Breckenridge about twenty. Bell about ten percent. So, on the one hand, yes, sixty percent voted against him. On the other hand, he did get more popular votes than any other candidate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it depends. It's one of these glass half full, half empty things, (laughs) I guess. And and as we all know, popular vote really doesn't matter in the end. It's the electoral vote that counts. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln, you know, won the electoral vote. Mm -hmm. So, and he won every state in the North except for New Jersey, which split with him and split between him and Douglas. Oh, okay. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's not ideal. I mean, Lincoln would have preferred, I suppose, to have over 50% (laughs) of the vote. But given the state of the country at the time, you know, it's about the best he could have expected, I think.
1: Do you think at this point, when he is first elected to president, is he expecting something of the magnitude of the civil war to happen?
0: No, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think Lincoln or anybody else at that time imagined or could have imagined what would come in the next four years. I mean, I I have to think that if they had, they would have taken different steps. I mean, you know, we have the hindsight to look back and say 700,000 men dead. Mm -hmm. Why, you know, um, I, but I think at the same time, if you look at Lincoln and every single decision he made during those four years, given the information available at hand and given the current situation, I think he made the, the case could be made. He made the right decision. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the cumulative effect of all those decisions was an absolutely horrendous civil war that killed two percent of the nation's population. Um, you know, <laughs> It's just, just, I I can't imagine that he would have, he could have imagined that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he might have imagined that this could turn into a civil war Mm -hmm. and that this civil war could, you know, drag on for months, maybe a year, you know, but four years of the such destruction of a a property and of human life. I I don't think that, I don't think Lincoln could have comprehended it.
1: I had, I heard a story, I don't know if this is true, that People uh, in the beginning of the Civil War would bring out, like, chairs to watch some of the The battles. The first
0: battle, of bull run. That was exactly what they did. People from Washington, D.C. said, oh, this is great. We've got a war. And they took out their picnic baskets, and they went out, and they made a a day of it. And at the beginning, the Union forces were were winning, and they were having a great time. And then all of a sudden, it turned around. And the Union forces skedaddled back to Washington as fast as they could. And then the people trailing everyone else, too. I mean, it was it would have been ludicrous to
1: watch. Because um, I, I had heard, like, people kind of thought uh, it would be short.
0: Yeah. Well, there were young men who were so desperate to join the Army because they didn't want to miss the fun. You know? <laughs> wow. And, well, three years later, they must have been wondering what, what they were thinking. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, there were people who were afraid afraid the war would be over before they got their chance.
1: Wow. Yeah. Um, does Lincoln, do you think Lincoln goes back and forth between his anti-slavery stance and this thing that I've heard talk about a lot and like preserving the union? Mm-hmm. And does one overtake the other as far as like the importance of winning uh, the Civil War? Like is he doing it for one reason over the other?
0: Uh, Preservation of the Union was always an objective. So at the beginning, it was the only objective. But due to the way the war developed, um, Lincoln recognized as of, say, about one year into the war that because there were slaves in the South, that was helping the South in their rebellion. And so that, he concluded, gave him the authority under the Constitution uh, to do something about slaves. So it was at that point that he began working on what we call now the Emancipation Proclamation. And once he issued the proclamation, that essentially added the second objective of freeing the slaves. But preserving the Union was was, was always the primary objective. We can say perhaps there were two primary objectives after the proclamation, to, to preserve the Union and free the slaves. But freeing the slaves was never um, you know more important than preserving the Union. Preserving the union was always the most important thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, when Lincoln was preparing the people for his Emancipation Proclamation, he didn't tell them he was doing this, but, <laughs> but he did. Uh, Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, was, was publicly after Lincoln to move more quickly on emancipation. And he wrote a public letter to Lincoln to encourage him to do this, a public letter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lincoln responded with his own public letter. Mm-hmm. And he said this. He said, uh, as to the policy, I seem to be pursuing, as you say, I've not meant to leave anyone in doubt. I would save the union. I would save it the shortest way under the constitution. If I could save the union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save the union by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do it. Now, uh, he was. He said that to prepare the people because he had already decided to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, which would free the slaves in some of the states and not free them in others, not in the border states. Um, it's unfortunate that that quote is sometimes quoted in our own day, out of context, in an attempt to show that Lincoln didn't care about the slaves. Mm. And they conveniently forget to quote Lincoln's concluding statement where he said, uh, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but this all pertains to my official capacity as president. It does nothing to change my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. So personally, if he could, he'd say everyone's free. Mm. But he can't just do whatever he wants as president. He has to obey the Constitution, the laws, and he has to also submit to public opinion to some extent. Um, But yeah, so preservation of the Union was always the primary objective. Emancipation became, I suppose, an equally important objective halfway through the war.
1: What do you think, while the war is going on, can you point to, are there examples that really, like, exemplify the leadership that Lincoln had throughout this whole time period? Like, for you, like, is there, like, one moment in, in time during the Civil War that says, wow, that's, like, that's a great leader that we have as president?
0: That's a good question. I have a, one of my programs I do. I call Lincoln on Leadership, and I talk about Lincoln's leadership qualities, and I give uh, I give examples of um, throughout his presidency. I'm just trying to think of uh, of one in particular here. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not coming up. I I know there's probably some good examples. Oh yeah. Yeah, let me just look up something real quick here. See if I Absolutely. Um, yeah, I do something I call uh Lincoln Unleash. I, I have sixteen uh, precedents mm-hmm. from the sixteenth president. <laughs> <laughs> and they're things I like they're things like know your principles <laughs> and stick to them. But at the same time be flexible on non essential points. Mm-hmm. One of Lincoln's uh one of his characteristics I think is is uh acknowledge your mistakes and learn from them mm-hmm. um yeah i'm trying to just kind of come down to one thing here all right how about this um this is from or this is early in the war you know lincoln remember chicago was the site of the convention in 1860. everyone expects it'll be seward of new york mm. the nominee if it's not seward you got bates from missouri you got cameron from pennsylvania you got chase from ohio and then way down below you got lincoln and some other guys <laughs> well the way it worked out lincoln was, was nominated Mm-hmm. So, we've got to work on his cabinet. Now, when we think of a politician making a cabinet, they tend to surround themselves by like minded people, don't they? Yeah. Yes. Lincoln man. thought about, well, who do I want in my cabinet? I thought about Seward and Chase and Bates and Cameron and others of my rivals for the nomination. And in the end, he put all those men in his cabinet. It was like notably inharmonious. There were members of his cabinet who demanded, or I should say refused to serve unless other members were kicked out. Mm. Lincoln somehow managed to get them all in his own cabinet and kept them in his cabinet. The only change he made in the first couple of years was Cameron, and Cameron was, was corrupt. That's why I got rid of him and brought in Stanton. That was one of the best, you know, great decision to bring in Stanton. But Lincoln somehow and i use this to make the point of two things one is recruit a great team but number two solicit and consider a diversity of opinions so Lincoln's surrounded by the by these people who who have some of them are diametrically opposed on other issues but and he has a cabinet meetings imagine what these cabinet meetings were like oh yeah <laughs> but lincoln wanted to hear different points of view and then based on all that information come up with the best decision and the best decision was often a compromise you know again think about how most politicians work they, they, they want to just hear what they want them to be told what what they want to hear. they've already decided what they're going to do anyway. they just want you know a rubber stamp. yeah Lincoln yeah. was totally the opposite, and, and his cabinet members, you know at the beginning they they all thought they were superior to him, and they probably were in terms of of reputation, in terms of political experience, in terms of followers. They were probably all his superior, but he had a way to manage them. William Seward says something to the effect. Uh, William Seward thought, as Secretary of State, he would be the one running the administration. He would essentially be a prime minister. Lincoln would be a figurehead president. He soon learned otherwise. Mm-hmm. As he later said, uh, the president is the best of us. <laughs> and Seward became a very close friend of Lincoln's, too, on top of that. So Lincoln had a way to not only you know get people to, to get along, mm-hmm. at least to some degree of, of harmony, but also to even, like, enjoy it while they're at it and um i think that's just remarkable because it would have been so if if, if he had left all these men outside of his cabinet what they would they would have they would have been attacking him left and right mm-hmm. and they would have created discord when what we need as a country we needed we need to come together we're going to fight a civil war i mean it was hard enough with the people in the north kind of together to fight the war imagine if the north had been totally fractured. Right. I mean it was pretty fractured as it is, but, but if it was completely fractured, if all these other prominent leaders were telling people Lincoln's a, you know, this, a Lincoln's a that, um, I mean the the North never would have won the war. So for Lincoln to be able to do that, you know, and he even gave remember that the Republican Party was made up mostly of former Democrats and former Whigs. Uh, Lincoln's a former Whig. He gives 4 of the 7 positions to former Democrats, 3 to former Whigs. His Whigs friends complained to him. He said, You're giving four to the Democrats and only three to us. Lincoln said, Well, you seem to forget, gentlemen. I expect to be at those meetings too. That even sinks out nicely. <laughs> so Lincoln had a way of uh yeah. just managing people, I think, that was incredible.
1: is that the inspiration behind the book Team of Rivals? Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and that's why I intentionally use that term rivals because obviously yeah. Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote the book Team of Rivals and mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the same same idea that he brought in all these different people. Cuz back then, I mean, a ca- a president's cabinet always had geographic diversity. That was recognized, you need to have people from different parts of the country just mm-hmm. to keep everybody happy. <laughs> but Lincoln's diversity in his cabinet went much deeper. You know, went to philosophical ideas, political views, uh, even backgrounds, character, everything. And again, he wasn't afraid to bring in very powerful men. Mhm. Um, you know, which is, again, think about our some of our recent leaders who want to be the, you know, they want to be the big guy. <laughs> and you're certainly not going to bring in somebody else who could overshadow you, right? Mm.
1: I no, I, I know what you mean. that That is important. I I think about, like myself, it, It's it sounds attractive to be surrounded by, like, people who just say yes to you. It sounds very attractive, but I know that I feel like that would just leave me in a blind spot somewhere.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and and Lincoln's cabinet members knew that they were free to disagree with him. They also knew or quickly learned that um, they were there to advise the president and they were not there to decide for him. Mm-hmm. So there were instances mm-hmm. where pretty much the whole cabinet or most of the cabinet was against Lincoln mm-hmm. and he would go through with the decision. because he felt it was the right decision so uh yeah
1: (laughs) the buck stops there yeah yeah (laughs) um as far as books are there certain books on lincoln that you really enjoy that you got a lot of value out of um i know we mentioned like team of rivals i've actually never read it i've heard good things about it but are there like other books on Lincoln that you've read that you really like? I would, I would, I would definitely recommend Team
0: of Rivals. It's a, it's a great book, a uh, great read. Not only on the issue of of leadership, but also uh, the whole fight to get the Thirteenth Amendment passed and and that process. Um, there's just so many books about Lincoln. You know, sometimes oh, yeah. people ask me what uh, for a good biography. Um, as far as a single volume biography, one that I like is David Herbert Donald. Uh, it's just called Lincoln, I think, a biography. Okay. It was probably published in the 90s. Um, There's many books that are on on various aspects of Lincoln's life. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one book I enjoyed reading was called Lincoln's Melancholy. It (laughs) talks about that whole, you know, Lincoln was prone to depression and Mm -hmm. and how that affected him during his life. But even uh, the author makes the point that depression isn't, or at least back then, wasn't necessarily viewed as something entirely negative. It was more like a character trait, and if you learned how to use it, uh, you could you know, turn it into something positive. Mm-hmm. It was written by a, a, either a, a Joshua Wolfshank was his name. I don't know if he was a psychiatrist or a psychologist, one or the other. Mm. Uh, it's a very good read, Lincoln's Melancholy. Um, as far as leadership, there's a book by Donald Phillips called Lincoln on Leadership. Um, if you want a book in Spanish on <laughs> leadership, Cesar uh, <laughs> Viral. Who uh, who was from Spain lived in Miami for a number of years. He wrote a book called uh, Abraham Lincoln to <laughs> Um Yeah, there's just so many, and, and as we know, I mean, I think in the last year, five or six new Lincoln books have come out, and they're That's all sweet. like must reads. You know, the John Meacham <laughs> book and the other books. Uh, it's just it's incredible the amount of uh, number of books that are published
1: about Lincoln. Yeah, that that surprises me that there's still so much. Or maybe it shouldn't surprise me that there's still so much to still tell on this this man, this story on Lincoln.
0: Two days ago, I was out in Kalamazoo, uh, and I was meeting with the president of this institute that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. He's already uh, he said he's working on a book. Wow! Said, oh boy, another Lincoln book.
1: (laughs) Good for him! Wow. Yeah, yeah.
0: Let me point out. Some people have asked me, "Am I going to write a book?" And I actually do have a book in mind. Oh, but it's probably cool. going to be 20 years down the road. Yeah. Because uh, the whole subject of Lincoln, religion, and the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, we've talked about at the beginning. Uh, there was a book written, I think, in 1950 by a guy named McCartney or something like that, Clarence McCartney, um, basically uh, talking about how Lincoln used the scriptures in his writings. Mm-hmm. I've read that book, and I think I can identify at least twice as many instances of Lincoln having used the scriptures in his writings than, than, than the, this book has. And that's in large part because it's so much easier to find stuff now. First of all, we have yeah. access to many more Lincoln's writings and speeches than we ever had before, and it's much easier to search. I mean, we can literally do a search on a term and come up with all everything Lincoln ever said about a certain subject. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I've been, over the last 10 years or so, every time I come across... Lincoln's use of a scripture, even if it's in a, a letter, a personal letter to somebody, I mm-hmm. jot it down, with the hope that someday, when I have free time, I'm going to publish a a, uh, a second edition, if you will, of this work, uh, talking about how Lincoln used the scriptures in his writings. And it's just incredible because
1: it's a great idea. Lincoln
0: would uh, routinely just drop scripture into a letter or a speech, and he didn't say, "As the good book tells us." <laughs> Because he knew that everyone listening at that time knew the scriptures very well. Mm -hmm. So if he talked about the gallows of Haman, any Christian today who's knowledgeable about their Bible knows he's talking about the book of Esther and how uh, the Jew Mordecai was going to be hanged on this gallows built by Haman, and then later the table was turned and Haman was hung on his own gallows. Mm. So Lincoln used this in at least two personal letters, To talk about a similar situation. But in each case, all he said was the gallows of Haman. He -hmm. didn't say, as the book of Esther tells us. (laughs) So, um, because the people of their day, of his day, were just very familiar with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So so I hope to someday, (laughs) if I ever do a book, that'll probably be the book I do. That's awesome. So that'll be book number (laughs) 18,752 on Lincoln.
1: (laughs) I am excited for the day that that comes out, Mr. Wood. Really quick, if people want to connect with you, um, book you for things, is yeah. uh, is your website the best? Uh, My
0: website is the best uh, first touch, if you will, yeah. uh, www.mrlincoln.com. And, and you might want to wonder how I got that website <laughs> uh, because I've had people offer to buy it from me.
1: Oh, for pretty good Yeah, amount, you know I what?
0: I, I got that website, I think, in the year two thousand. Maybe. You know, it was kind of a new thing still. Internet was still a new thing. I thought, you know, I do these Lincoln things. Maybe I'll keep doing it, you know. And so I said, I'll just get this website. Uh, (laughs) It's probably the best decision I ever made in my Lincoln career. Because as I said, I mean, guys today, if they need a website, they have to do things like fourscoreandsevenyears.com or things like oh, that, yeah. you know, because Mr. Lincoln is not available anymore. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah Mr. Lincoln.com. And from there, I, I, all my contact information is on there. Uh, I have all my programs on there. I do 14 kind of set programs and um, links to obviously Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc. You, you can read about the Gettysburg Address. Uh, you can listen yeah. to the Gettysburg Address in English, <laughs> Spanish, French, and German. Because even though I'm fluent in Spanish and do programs in Spanish, I also know enough French and German to have the Gettysburg Address memorized in those languages.
1: And That's I'm working impressive. on Italian now. <laughs> Jeez. I have trouble just with English sometimes. Wow. Um, Mr. Kevin Wood, uh, thank you very much for doing this. Um, I'm getting you out of here right we're at our hour four minutes, so this is perfect timing. Um, thank you very much for coming on and doing this. Uh, I learned a lot just speaking to you about this, um, and I've learned a ton over these last few weeks, just researching on Abraham Lincoln um, for everybody at home. I'll, I'll include the links to uh, okay. your website in the description of the episode, and um, thank you everybody for listening. My name is Chris. This is Cheetash. Take care.